You are listening to a proper DBE podcast hosted by Georgia Abrams and brought to you by the Daughters of the British Empire. British Empire is a 501c3 nonprofit American Society of Women of British or Commonwealth birth or ancestry, sharing and promoting our heritage while supporting local charities and our senior living facilities across the US. Good afternoon and welcome to episode 14. I have one quick announcement today. The Illinois Holiday Tea is coming up on December 4th in Chicago. It starts at noon and tickets are $55. I'll include the link in the show notes, so if you're in the area, we'd love to see you there. Now, November is Aviation History Month. I have a little something prepared for you on that theme, so pour yourself a cup of tea and get comfortable. The Women's Branch of the Royal Air Force first existed from 1918 to 1920 to provide female mechanics freeing up men for the front lines during World War I. So many women enrolled that they took on a variety of other non-combat roles to aid in war efforts. Also established in 1918 was the Royal Air Force Temporary Nursing Service, which became a permanent establishment in 1921 and received royal patronage in 1923 becoming Princess Mary's Royal Air Force Nursing Service. At this time, the nursing service only accepted women who were unmarried or childless widows. During World War II, both the U.S. and Britain started giving air service jobs to women in order to again free up more men for combat roles. 80% of all ferrying missions were completed by female pilots. In 1939, the ATA, Air Transport Auxiliary, organized its own women's section. At the same time, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force was established in Britain. Use of female pilots was limited to the ATA, who ferried new, damaged, and repaired aircraft between factories, assembly plants, transatlantic delivery points, maintenance units, scrapyards, and active service squadrons and airfields. They would also sometimes fly personnel on urgent duty or perform air ambulance duties. WAFs, on the other hand, did not serve as aircrew though they were exposed to the same dangers as anyone else on the home front. They participated in aircraft maintenance, parachute packing, crewing barrage balloons, meteorology, radar, and telegraphic communications. They also worked to crack codes and ciphers, performed intelligence operations, and became plotters in operations rooms directing fighter aircraft and mapping both home and enemy aircraft positions. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, a pilot named Jackie Cochran wrote to First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, petitioning that women should be used to pilot aircraft in non-combat missions. She was ultimately asked to ferry a bomber to Britain as publicity for women piloting military aircraft. She agreed, and whilst there, she volunteered for the ATA, where she succeeded in recruiting another 25 American volunteers. They became the first American women to fly military aircraft. She also studied the organization of the ATA and the Royal Air Force during this time. Cochran returned to the U.S. in 1941, the day before the formation of the Women's Auxiliary Flying Squadron was announced. Understandably, she was a bit miffed that her idea had been overlooked while someone else's had been accepted. But soon enough, she had enough support to form the Women's Flying Training Detachment and implemented everything she learned whilst volunteering with the ATA in Britain. Both the WAFS and the WFTD were officially formed in 1942, 
but merged in 1943, creating the Women's Air Service Pilots, or WASPs. WASPs transported every type of military aircraft, simulated missions, transported cargo, test flew new or repaired aircraft, and towed targets for the men doing live gun practice. Back in Britain, the WAF reached peak strength in 1943. 2,000 women were enlisting each week, taking their numbers upwards of 180,000. Princess Mary's Royal Air Force Nursing Service started accepting more than unmarried women or childless widows. Their nurses started wearing rank insignia that was equivalent to RAF officers' ranks. For example, a matron wore the insignia of squadron leader, and a matron-in-chief wore the insignia of air commodore. In 1944, the WASPs were disbanded with over 60 million miles under their belts and freeing 900 men for the front lines. General Arnold of the U.S. Army Air Force said, The WASP has completed its mission. Their job has been successful. But as is usual in war, the cost has been heavy. 38 WASPs have died while helping their country move toward the moment of final victory. The Air Forces will long remember their service and their final sacrifice. WAF enrollment was down by the end of World War II, and demobilization caused the majority of the service to disband. The few hundred women that remained were renamed the Women's Royal Air Force in 1949. The end of the RAF was marked in 1994 when it merged with the RAF. WASPs fought for veteran status until 1977 when President Jimmy Carter signed into legislation that their service should be considered active duty. In 2009, they were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. During the ceremony, President Obama said, The Women's Air Force Service pilots courageously answered their country's call in a time of need while blazing a trail for the brave women who have given and continue to give so much in service to the nation since. Every American should be grateful for their service, and I am honored to sign this bill to finally give them some of the hard-earned recognition they deserve. To bring things to a close, P.J. Schaefer from Ohio's Sir James M. Barry chapter is here to read Maggie Mahoney's story from our World War II Memories book. Maggie Mahoney grew up in London. When war broke out, she was still in high school. Soon, all able-bodied adults over 18 were being conscripted. Her mother was sent to work on civil defense. In 1943, at age 17 and a half, Maggie decided to preempt conscription and had her father sign written permission for her to join the WRAF. She was sent to Gloucester for square bashing and then was assigned to Bomber Command. Maggie spent two and a half years in Bomber Command intelligence and to this day says she cannot tell all she did as it was top secret and still has not been fully released. She was stationed in North Yorkshire and worked with the Royal Canadian Air Force. She learned air traffic control. She knew about the dam busters raids that flew from Lincolnshire. She was on duty in July of 1943 when the first thousand bomber raid on Hamburg took place. Maggie was on duty the night of June the 5th, 1944, when the D-Day landings were taking place. Remember, there was a weather delay. Her shift extended to 16 hours from 5 on the 5th to 9 a.m. on the 6th, as the top secret Allied assault in Normandy went on. When the war ended, 
Maggie found herself still in the WRAF, assigned to pay accounts for 12 months. She calls that being misemployed. In other words, she was not working at what she had trained for, so she volunteered to go overseas. The fighting was over, but the Allies now faced the task of occupying and reorganizing things in Europe. Maggie was assigned to the Recher Force of Occupation Headquarters in Bison, Baden-Alsen in Germany. She spent two and a half years there working in air traffic control and in 1948 to 49, worked the Berlin airlift as shift supervisor. She was ranked as a corporal. That's all for this week. Remember, I love seeing your comments, so send those to our email, podcast at dbenational.org, or leave them on our Facebook or Instagram. And you can also follow us on Pinterest for all kinds of British and Commonwealth recipes. Until next time. Not ourselves, but the cause.